All right. Good morning, church. If you've got a Bible, go on and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we'll be here shortly. Um, <clears throat> we do, uh, I did have technological issues this week and uh, in preparation, so all the verses will not be on the screen like they typically are, and that is on me, um, not our awesome media team, but uh, but that's on me. And so um, if you've been here for parts of our, or all of our rivalry series, then uh, what I hope you have seen is that God has designed his church to be unified together around who Christ is and what he did on the cross. However, because of our sin, we often find ourselves not doing that, <laughs> arguing or uh, that we find divisions in the church. And so that's what we've been looking at. Today we look at the fourth issue that Paul outlines. Uh, we're kind of skipping ahead a little bit. What we're calling when frivolity divides. Okay, I told you the last two. We had to get a little creative on the words because I wanted them all to start with an F so that I could remember them. And so we went with frivolity. So just in case you need the definition, it comes from the word frivolous, okay? It means this, a lack of seriousness or lightheartedness, okay? Um, just to give you an example, I've been a dad for six years now. What I have learned about children, um, and some of you have been parents a lot longer than six years than you can preach next Sunday, okay? But for me... I've been a dad for six years, and here's what I've learned about kids is um, the way your the personality your child begins the day with is not the personality that they end the day with, amen? And so my children are polar opposites. I have an emotional daughter, and I have a mean son, okay? <laughs> a mean slash happy son, okay? I, it's a, you just have to know him. And at some point <clears throat> throughout the day, Throughout the day, they move towards one another in their personalities. And there is this happy little moment where they actually play together at some point during the day and they get along. It's when they, they're crossing. <laughs> and then they just continue on. And so my daughter, uh, who is, uh, or my son, who is much more of a happy kid naturally, even though he can be a little mean, but he enjoys the meanness. You know, if you smile through the meanness, you're still a happy kid. And so um, by the end of the night, he is an emotional wreck. He's like his sister is in the morning, just crying over everything. If you go to get on to Daniel right before bedtime, like you might as well just not because you're not, he's not going to be able to go to bed. He's just going to cry at the drop of a hat. That's my son. Now my daughter, who starts off an emotional wreck, <laughs> finds herself after bedtime in a state of delirium. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Like just laughing, everything's a joke, everything's fun, and there are times where uh, she finds funny something that breaks the rules of our household or of God's word, it depends on the night, right? And so, and it's in that moment that I have to correct her as a father, that's my job, and so I, I, I try to talk to her, and I try to tell her the seriousness of her action, and what does she do? Uh, she's laughing and singing and looking around. And then I, then I grab her arm, you know, the arm grab, where you pull them in real close and you look eye to eye and you make sure, and I'm like, and I go two arms and, I'm lo and she's looking right at me, but she's singing and just not paying attention at all. She's totally lacking the seriousness that I need her to have in that moment. At this point, I would just rather her cry. You know, like that, I would rather take an explosion of tears. At least that shows some remorse. 
But all I get is laughter and song and dance. And so that's my daughter. My daughter in that moment isn't, she lacks the seriousness that I need her to have in the situation, right? She's very lighthearted after bedtime. And so that's why we try to get in bed on time. Um, but this is, this is kind of, okay, um, she's not focused on the things I want her to, take, to focus on. She's taking them very lightly. That's the issue that's going on in Corinth that we're going to get into today, okay? Um, they were not taking serious something that God said was to be a serious thing, a moment of importance. And so um, I want to read, and th- this is the, the passage that we're going to look at today, um, is the passage, a passage that you'll be very familiar with, but we're going to look at the context around it and hopefully give you a better grasp of what the Lord's Supper is really designed to be by God. So I'm going to start, I'm going to read verses 17 and 18. We're going to look at a lot of verses today. We're going to start in 17 and 18. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come back and look at this, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you, um, God, that you've given us your word to guide us, lead us, direct us, God, and help us to love one another. Um, God, I pray that today, as we study your word, God, that you would be at the center of this, and God, that you would uh, lead us and help us, God, to understand better uh, this table that we're about to partake of, and God, better understand the relationships that we're supposed to have with one another. We trust all these things in Jesus' name, amen. As you see in those those first two verses, uh, Paul says that you are coming together not for the better, but for the worse, okay? So what? So clearly they, what he's about to get into is the Lord's Supper itself. He's about to talk about the, the, the table, um, the Lord's Supper. And so I'm just going to, we're going to step aside from the scripture and we're going to talk for just a little bit and then we're going to come back to the scripture, I promise you, okay? Here's the deal. There are two major views of the Lord's Supper I want to talk to you about today. One is the view that I held for my entire life and you probably did too. And then I'm going to give you the biblical one. Okay, do you understand? <laughs> Meaning that yours has probably been unbiblical as mine has, okay? Because what we're going to see today is that we've had the wrong, we, we've, we've, we've been frivolous about, uh, about certain things um, when it comes to Scripture. And so what I want to show you today is, number one, if you're a note taker, the first thing, the first view is an individualistic view of the remembrance, right? Individualistic view of the remembrance. Um, this is the way I was raised, Right, um, I was raised that 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 the Lord's Supper is this this moment between us and God. It's it's this uh, this personal act of worship. Let's read the rest of the scripture. I'm gonna start in verse um, twenty-three. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when He was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, 
that's where my pastor would start, and that's where in the previous two churches I have preached um, in and been a part of, that's where we've started. We've talked about that, that, that the Lord, on the night that he was betrayed, if you don't, you don't know where that comes from, um, Jesus, the night that he was given over to be arrested, he, uh, he, he celebrated this Lord's Supper, and he gave them bread, and he gave them uh, the wine. And so for us, that's what I've, we've always done. We've taken these things, and I would hold the bread in my hand. And I would just look at it because this is what I was taught to do. Okay, I'd just look at the bread and I would think about the body that was broken. i think about the pain that Jesus experienced and, and I would, I would uh, just, just lament over the sin in my own life that caused this, right? And then I would, with almost shaking hands, take the Lord's Supper, right? And then, then the juice would be passed and I would... Uh, because it's Welch's, because we're Baptist, right? But I would, I would take that, I would take that juice, and I would, I would look at it, and I would think about the blood that Jesus shed, and uh, for my sin that, that allows me to have a relationship with God. And with shaking hands, I would take that. And the reason my hands were shaking is the verses that come after that. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, we, I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad, right? Like, I mean, literally, I, I looked at commentaries. I mean, we, there's no context given to what, what that means. All we know, I don't want to be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord, okay? But we, there is a possibility to take it in an unworthy manner. And so my pastors would always tell me, hey, man, you need to search the depths of your heart. If there's any unconfessed sin, you need to lay it out before the Lord. You need to put your blinders on. You need to forget everybody else around. This is you and God. You need to talk to God and you need to confess any sin that's in your life and get it out before the Lord. Otherwise, you're going to be guilty of the sin what is it? Guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. He goes on in verse 28, Let a person examine himself, and in this way let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I promise you, I, d- I recognize the body of Christ. I mean, as I held that bread, I thought and thought and thought about the body of Christ as it was broken for me, the blood that was shed. That's what I did. I, I sat there and I, man, I, I just poured over it. And that's probably how you were raised. It's probably how you've always read these passages. But listen, Paul's conversation didn't start in verse 23. Paul's conversation started in verse 17. It really started in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But we're going to jump to 11 verse 17. What I want you to see today is that God desires the remembrance of Christ to not be a personal or individualistic moment, but a communal one. Okay? So everything I just talked about, having your blinders up, your personal sin that you've sinned in your own heart against God, that's not what God designed here. So let's let's do this together, okay? So what I'm what I'm advocating for number 2 here, individual's view of the remembrance number 2 is a communal view of the remembrance. A communal view. And so as we've been talking about Paul, a lot of Paul's focus has been on the church, conflicts in the church, right? And so what I want to do, we're going we're gonna to kind of reframe. We're going to go back to verse 17, work our way back to verse 23. And then I'm going to reread 23 through 29 that we just read through a new lens. And you're going to go, oh, that makes so much more sense, okay? 
So start, let's, let's look at verse 19. I've already read 17 and 18. Um, so the first thing I, well, let me do this first. I'm, I'm getting off my notes, so y'all bear with me. This is actually point number A, Daryl, okay? Point number A is this. I want you to understand the origin of the Lord's Supper, okay? The origin of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, not that. We'll get to that in a second. I want you to know the origin story of this remembrance. As Paul said, on the night that Jesus was arrested that led to his death, he met with his disciples to celebrate a yearly feast that was called Passover, okay? And so Passover was a Jewish feast, a yearly Jewish feast in which they remembered how God rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt through these crazy miraculous ways. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, like the first 21 chapters, that's it. That's the story. This guy named Moses, God calls up from Egypt to lead his people, lead God's people back. Uh, At this point, at the beginning of Egypt, they're living um, in in uh, slavery in Egypt, and God, through these crazy miraculous ways, leads them back. The Passover meal was a remembrance. It was a way for you to teach your family, to teach your children, to teach your neighbors the story of God's deliverance. And they would do it through this weird meal where they ate strange things, they said weird things, but each dish... An ingredient had a unique meaning that helped them remember the pain of the slavery, but also the celebration of the deliverance. All right, so Jesus, he met with his disciples on this night that he was betrayed. He was the rabbi. He was the teacher. He was the one who, who he was the daddy at the table, okay? He was the father who was there with his family. As a Jewish teacher, he would have known the meal very well. He would have known every single part and no doubt walked through it with great accuracy. Now, the discrepancy comes is when he did did this part. Whether it was the last part of the Passover meal or whether it was after the Passover meal in general. But he walks through every step of the Lord's Supper, of the Passover meal, and he gets to the end. And there on the table, because of the previous steps, there would have been a loaf of bread that they have already partaken of, and there would be four large cups of wine. And Jesus, at the end of this meal, he does something different, and it would have freaked them out a little bit. They'd be like, what? this isn't a step. Jesus took the bread, and he passed it around the table. He said, everybody get you a piece of bread. And they did. And then... He said, as you eat this bread, this bread represents the broken body, my body, that's going to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they looked uncomfortably at him and ate the bread (laughs) because he's their teacher. And then he took the large goblet of wine and he passed it around. And he says, this this wine is is, uh, the new covenant uses Old Old Testament language to talk about a new covenant that God's been working on from the beginning of time, a new way to connect with God. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And so then they, they drink of the cup. Again, confused. What blood have you shed, Jesus? And so this is the point. So instead of pointing back to God saving the Israelites, as he had already done in the Passover, Jesus said the bread and the wine point forward to a moment in which God would save the world. The bread represented his body which was broken, the wine his blood that was shed, and his followers took both. 
And Jesus said, remember me. And we'll, we'll talk about that some more here in a little bit. But um, the thing is, it didn't end there. So this practice actually continued. This practice, the disciples didn't go, oh, that was neat. And then just forget about it. They actually passed that on. How do I know that? It's here. Almost 2,000 years later, we're still doing the same thing. Okay? We're still doing the same thing. But here's what you may not know. The, a lot of the Jewish Christians still celebrated the Passover. Right? They still did that. But they only did that once a year. Well, the church took the Lord's Supper a whole lot more than once a year. And they almost always, in the first century and probably even maybe even the second century, they almost always celebrated the Lord's Supper after a meal. Okay? Now, it wasn't the Passover meal, but it was just a feast. Okay? Like a good old family feast. And then they would take the Lord's Supper. How do you know that, Heath? Point number A. Paul was addressing this Commun- this corporate issue. Look at verse 20, 20. Let's look at verse 20. This is the problem with their remembrance going on here. Paul says this, When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. What Paul's saying is, you're coming together for the Lord's Supper, but you ain't doing it for the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another Gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I don't praise you in this matter. All right. So look, yeah, here we got another divisive issue causing rivalry in Corinth. We shouldn't be surprised at this point. Okay. So again, just as Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper on the tail end of a feast, the early church did too. The Christians would gather to eat and then they would take the Lord's Supper as a church. The issue wasn't that they weren't doing it. The issue was how they were doing it. So here's some context. The, the, Roman, the Roman Empire at this point is very segmented. Okay? Um, there are, there, there's very little middle class. Like nobody's middle class. You're either haves or you're have-nots. Okay? Now, who do you think the haves hung out with? The haves. And guess what kind of food they ate? The have food. Okay, like rich food. Man, they had the best wine. They had filet mignon. They had some kind of fish that's really expensive. I don't know. I don't do fish. But whatever. It ain't catfish. Okay? But they did all this stuff. So they had the nicest of the foods and they hung out together. And then you had the have-nots. Right? And guess who they hung out with? The have-nots. And guess what kind of food they ate? Have-not food. And oftentimes they didn't have food. <laughs> that wasn't meant to be that book. But, but they didn't have food, right? And so there was this very segmented society, the haves and the have-nots. You had the Jews who hung out with Jews and the Gentiles who hung out with Gentiles, the men who hung out with men, the women who hung out with women. The society is very, very segmented. And Corinth would have been no different. Right? Corinth would have been no different from this. But in Paul's teaching, what we learn as he wrote to the church in Galatia, the church was called to be different from the world outside. Right? There were haves, there were have-nots, there were Jews, there were Gentiles, there were men, there were women. But Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, 
male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So Corinth knew the teachings of Paul. They knew that the church was not to be segmented like the rest of the world was. It had to look different. According to Paul, all the stigmas and divisions of the outside world have no place in the church. We are all on level playing field in the church. This is why the Christ movement of the first century attracted so many of the lower class. They had no voice and women, women in lower class, because they had no voice in the outside world and they came into the church and they did have a voice. They were equal. That's important. But what was going on in Corinth? Paul says that they were gathering for a meal before the Lord's Supper and people were just bringing their own food. It was potluck, but you didn't share it, right? You just brought your own lunch. It was bring your lunch to church day. And they were bringing their lunch. And as you can imagine, the halves didn't bring a brown paper sack, right? The, the halves brought some good grub. The halves brought their filet mignon and their fancy wine and all this stuff. And the have-nots brought a half a PB&J. And then they sat down and they ate in the presence of one another. Okay? The word that Paul says of the upper class as they're eating, it gets translated a bunch of different ways. And sometimes it gets translated that they didn't wait on the have-nots, that the have just ate before the rest of them got there. But it's because the word is that they devoured their food. Okay? that they just gobbled it up like a nutcase, okay? They just devoured this rich food. And they're sitting right beside someone who can't even afford a full PB&J. That's what was going on. The upper class members, they were used to this fancy food. And that's why Paul says, one goes hungry while another gets drunk. Paul's not saying that they were literally drunk people. He's saying, you got some people that ain't got nothing to eat, and others are eating till they're about to pop and drinking till they're almost drunk. Right? That's what Paul's, Paul's issue with them is not that they weren't taking the Lord's Supper. It was that they have some issues in their demeanor. After all that unequal eating, okay, so you've got the haves at one table eating their food, the have-nots eating at their table, and then once the meal is over, then we gather together for the Lord's Supper and we pass the bread and everybody gets an equal piece of bread. And then we pass the cup and everybody takes the same sip. And we say that we're all unified in Christ. <laughs> Do you see Paul's issue? It was the inconsistency of their hearts Paul's conversation is how can you take the Lord's Supper in such unity when just before this you were treating each other as if you weren't equal. They were frivolous in the way they were treating the body. This is the predicament. The commentator I read this week said the Corinthian problem was not their failure to gather but their failure to truly be God's new people when they gathered where there was neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And it's with that context, this division in the church, this lack of love, this lack of unity, that Paul then retells, for I received that which the Lord Jesus Christ gave to me on the night he was betrayed. He took bread after supper, right? And Paul goes into retelling them what he's already told them. Paul's issue with them was, was this thing. 
Paul's is just reminding them of what they already know in those verses, and then he gets to verse 27. So let's look at let's look at these 27, 28, and 29, because these are the scary verses. Let's read them now in light of what Paul talked about already, okay? Now we got context. Y'all, I've been a Christian for 26 years. I've been in ministry for 12. I've never studied these verses, okay? Never. It's like I've rarely ever studied John chapter 3. Why? Because we know it. John 3.16. We know that. But when we study these verses that are very familiar with us, man, things just jump off the page. Let's look at verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, what is the unworthy manner now, you think? Right? If you just read that, like my pastor always did growing up, you're left to your own ideas. (laughs) Or you might think it has to do with just, uh, you know, the fact that you haven't read your Bible this week or you haven't prayed enough or whatever. You didn't share your faith this week. What is the unworthy manner that Paul is speaking about? A lack of unity in the body. A lack of the wrong mentality of the way you view the body. That's what Paul's talking. This is the unworthy manner. Because he says in verse 28 and 29, let a person examine himself to see if you've, you know, if you're taking it in an unworthy manner. And let him eat the bread and drink the cup. Listen to this part. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, for me growing up, that was the physical body of Christ. And that's why I stared at the bread and I thought about Jesus' broken body and then I stared at the cup and I thought about Jesus' blood that was shed for me. But there's another term, the body of Christ, right? First, the church. And in light of everything that Paul said, it is clear that what Paul is saying is for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing their local congregation and the unity that's supposed to be there, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. If we don't recognize the body, then we're taking this in an unworthy manner. He's not referring to his own body. He's referring to the body of Christ. So yes, when we take the Lord's Supper, we need to think about Jesus' body and blood that was broken and shed for me. But Paul is making a case here that we need to be thinking of one another as we eat as well. The Lord's Supper is a communal act, not a personal one. And if you put your blinders on and you forget about everyone else around you, then you're not being obedient to what God's Word is telling us that the Lord's Supper is for. That's what I did. I would put these blinders on. But listen, the Lord's Supper is a communal meal that should not remind me first that Christ died for me. Okay? Hang in with me. The Lord's Supper should not remind you first that that Jesus died for you. It should first remind you Christ died for us. Do you see the difference? That should be the first thing that we thank God for in the Lord's Supper. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for the people of Lindsay Lane East. Not ourselves. But yet in our individualistic society, that's where we find ourselves. It would have been much easier 
for us. See, we're, we're here. We're a very individualistic society. We're naturally drawn towards ourselves. It's about me, 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 me. And then, because of modern medicine and our understanding of, um, of, uh, of uh, germs, okay, we get individual cups, right? We get our own individual piece of bread because heaven forbid if we passed a piece of bread and y'all put y'all's nasty hands all over it. Like, I don't want it either, all right? I get it. I get why we're individual, okay? But just put yourself in the place. Point, point number C, if you're, the no, if you're note takers in the room, is that, oh, we haven't done, you got A, you got B, then C. A wasn't up there. Paul was addressing a corporate issue. The dis- distribution of elements was more communal then than now. They literally passed one loaf. Paul talks about it in chapter 10, that we, are, we, we all pull from the same loaf. See how much easier it would be to see the church, to see the Lord's Supper this way? If we're pulling from the same loaf, and then he, and then then they would pass that that one thing, and it wouldn't be so individualistic. But I get it. So I'm not saying we go back to that. Okay, <laughs> I'm not saying that because it's flu season. All right. <laughs> but here's what I am saying: as you get your individual cup, and as you get your individual piece of bread, acknowledge that they are equal to the person beside you. These pieces of bread are exactly the same size. Pull it off the same machine. however they're produced. I don't know how we make these things. And the juice is from the same bottle of Welch's. Okay? Like this is, this is supposed to remind us that we are in this together. So I don't want to taste y'all's backwash. But what it's supposed to remind us is that we are all one in Christ. No one is more important than the other. And so this is the application of the text for us today. Are you aware of the body of Christ? Are you living in community with us here at East? Do you believe that everyone is on a level playing field in Christ? If not, we're going to have a hymn of invitation for you to pray and ask God to change your heart. Otherwise, you will take the Lord's Supper today in an unworthy manner. You understand? And you'll be guilty of the sin of sin of the blood and body of Christ. This is what it is. We're going to sing the first part of a song. Worship team, y'all come on up. And we're going to give some of us a chance to repent of sins that we've committed against the body. Yes, confess your personal sins. But it do you have the right mindset? Do you view the church in the way that Paul is talking about? This would be a great time if you've got an issue with somebody else here in the body to go give them a hug and an apology if that's what's needed. But for some of you, you may not be a Christian. Well, the Lord's Supper, as we're going to talk about here in a little bit, is for those of us who are in Christ. Maybe you've never acknowledged your sin before a holy God and surrendered your, sorry, surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus. If you'd like to talk about that, I'd love to be here. I'm going to be right up front here, probably to the right here. Um, I would love to talk with you um, about how you can begin to follow Jesus today. I'm going to voice a prayer, and we're going to all stand, um, and they just have a time of response. The altar will be open. I'll be down front if you need to talk to me about anything, but let's all begin to shift our minds towards the body, 
Not the broken body of Jesus, but the body of Christ that exists today here at East. And then after I pray, we'll stand and we'll have this time of response. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper shortly thereafter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, um, that you are the sovereign Lord, um, God, who has uh, ordained all of this. And God, you knew what I was going to say today a long time ago, long before I did, Father. And um, God, I pray that our church would be transformed by the message that you have put before us today, your word. Uh, Father, I pray that we would ever have ever before us the body of Christ in our minds. God, help us today to be obedient. It's in Jesus Christ's holy and precious name I pray.